My name is Oksana, and together with Gabriela, we represent Ace Adventures. We have two guests today, Cynthia and Gianluca, and we decided to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and startup within this area. So, let's start, Gabriela. Good morning. This podcast is organized by Ace Adventures, a student-run venture capital fund which invests into student-run tech startups in Amsterdam. As most of our startups actually have a strong software base in them and are driven by latest innovations in artificial intelligence, we thought it would be smart to demystify these AI concepts and turn them into something perhaps more digestible for everyone. But first off, let's introduce one of our guests today with us. It's Cindy Skodrani. She's an AI alumni from the University of Amsterdam. She's now also working as a machine learning expert and is also a member of Women in AI Foundation. So Cindy, thank you very much for being today here with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Maybe first off, can you tell us more about yourself and what is exactly that you do and what is exactly that Women in AI as an organization stand for? Thanks, Gabriele, for the nice introduction. Hello, everyone. It's nice to be part of this podcast that AC Ventures has initiated. I'm Cindy. I, as Gabriele mentioned, graduated artificial intelligence from the University of Amsterdam a couple of years ago. In my day-to-day job, I work as a machine learning, computer vision, research engineer, and I'll tell you more about that later. But how we got in touch with ASIF was from my other job as project manager of Women in AI Accelerate. Women in AI is a global tutorial tank, ink tank, of communities of women in technology, women in artificial intelligence that want to get together and share their expertise, share, create, you know, networking connections and so on. And this year is special for women in AI in the Netherlands because this year we're piloting this program called Why Accelerate, where we take about 20 women that have an AI idea through the process of defining it, selecting a team, preparing finances, preparing their product and all they need to do up to the moment of pitching to investors to have an AI startup. And we are part of this and we're supporting them through the process. And that's how we got together with Asif Ventures on doing more together on startups and AI. As Ace Ventures is working for students and is actually managed also by students, I think it's very important to also get student insights on board, exactly because of this reason. Today we have Gianluca on board with us. So first of all, thank you very much, Gianluca, for being here today with us. We really appreciate it, and we're very happy to hear all of your insights. So maybe to begin with as well, could you maybe share a little more about yourself? Why did you decide to study AI? What do you find so interesting about the field, if of course you do? Thank you for having me. So thank you. Right, a little bit about myself. Well, I have a background in computer science and genetics uh, from my undergraduate, and I'm currently doing my master's in artificial intelligence uh, at the Freie Universiteit in Amsterdam, uh, except that COVID-19 has, uh, <laughs> has thrown some hurdles in that, but uh, but otherwise the plan is still on track. Yeah, I'm also a podcaster and um, I guess Twitter addict, so that's usually where, where, where my ideas can be found. But yeah, it's um, it's great to be able to, to chat about AI. It's a something I'm very interested in. Yeah, my my interests in it are particularly focused around healthcare and how it relates to the human body, the human well-being, the human mind. Um, And so these sort of interfaces between human cognition, human biology, and intelligent digital systems really fascinate me. So that's everything from computational drug dosing all the way through to predicting disease and things that, that run the full gamut of the interface between humans and AI. There is a lot of misconceptions and miscommunications around AI. So can you tell us what it is in your opinion? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, defining intelligence, first of all, is a really tricky one. And I think uh, there's a, a paper where they poll a whole bunch of different experts from you know, psychology, philosophy, computer science, and they all give completely different definitions of intelligence. So the word intelligence alone is a tricky one to define, but uh, a good working definition for that seems to be the ability to achieve one's goals or whatever those goals might be. And then when you add the artificial part to that, well, what you really get is it's in some system that's, that's non-biological. It's, it's an artifact. It's something that's been created, in this case, by humans. But I think another important distinction that's really lost when the term AI is thrown around these days is the difference between these sort of narrow AIs, these tool AIs, which is all your kind of machine learning um, and most of your deep learning. And that's really something that has a small, narrow purpose. And it's really like any other tool just designed and optimized for that purpose. And it's completely out of its depth if you try and apply it to anything else without serious modification. And then you get these sort of broader general AIs, which are still theoretical at this point. And that is really sort of the, the level that a lot of people think we will get to in the near future. But treating these as distinct elements, these tool narrow AIs versus these general, potentially conscious, potentially very introspective general AIs that we haven't yet created is a really good way to think about the different kinds of advantages and problems that you might face in each. And making the error of clumping them together too much is where I think a lot of the confusion comes about in this field. Thank you, Gianluca. Cindy, how would you describe it? Yeah, so AI can get very mythical and there's this halo of coolness around it, but the, the concept of AI has also evolved with time. What was called AI in the 60s would never be called AI nowadays, right? So it's kind of like a moving term for things that are really at the cutting edge and bleeding edge of technology. And what we call AI nowadays really goes around more machine learning and deep learning. And if you actually study AI in a master's or a PhD, there's really no subfield or it's really hard to define even from within so people just they really go into the subfield genres of ai but nowadays what's more prominent we can say that it's definitely machine learning and deep learning and of course you know these neural networks and algorithms and complex things that we talk about are based around modeling and data so you have a lot of data and you build a model an algorithm that models some input to some output and basically models a behavior that you can reproduce by feeding it new data this is what it is it's a model that can reproduce certain behavior and that's how it say that the model thinks, right? So the complexity of this can get pretty interesting and we've seen that AI can do pretty amazing stuff. But often cases you can reach pretty phenomenal results even with, I don't know, algorithms that are more simple and they don't necessarily have to be AI. The thing about AI is that it's powerful, it's scalable and if you feed it enough data, it can do really, really great things that can even surpass what humans can do. And what's, what's interesting to know for an outsider is that it's really based based on data and what you feed it. And it's not magic, it's just mathematics and modeling. So maybe you can tell us now more about the recent projects that you have been working on uh, with regards to AI. I've heard you've also been working on some corona-related projects, so maybe you could elaborate on that. Yes, so obviously coronavirus has shifted everyone's priorities quite a bit and uh, also shifted the availability of, of different projects and uh, what people can and, and want to work on. Once sort of the kind of quarantine and lockdown phase began, I was, I was looking around for, for some ways I could, I could help despite being locked down. And I came across the uh, Helpful Engineering Group, which is a group of 10 or, or more thousand people who are all interacting online. These are people with backgrounds in statistics, data science, computer 
engineering, software engineering, who are all trying to contribute to society in many ways. And obviously, there's a lot of projects now to do with addressing the coronavirus. So one in particular that I've started working on is called CoVital. And the focus of this project is to try and do blood oxygen saturation estimation on smartphones. So what that means is you want to really know the blood oxygen level in subjects because it's a really good marker for respiratory infection distress, right? So if someone's, you know, normally going to be at like 98 to 99% oxygen saturation, but when they have coronavirus, you know, that's going to drop way off. So it's a really good early predictor and it's a really good measure of, of their health and whether they need acute care. The problem is to measure this, you need some kind of commercial medical device like a pulse oximeter. And most people don't have access to those um, and definitely not at home and now they're unshorted. So the goal is to be able to just use the smartphone camera placed right up against the finger and then use some of these tools, these narrow AI systems to try and actually predict what a pulse oximeter would say, right? So just using the color and the color changes uh, from the phone, um, we're already starting to get some results on our, our sample data. And as more real world data pours in from real hospitals that uh, the project's partnered with, our hope is that we'll be able to do really good estimation of blood oxygen levels on anyone's phone. You'll be able to download an app, iOS or Android, and pretty quickly be able to determine, you know, what your status is there and whether or not you need to seek further medical attention. And I think everyone at this point will be very interested to hear when could we even expect to have such app fully functioning and working so the general public and all of us could start using it. Right. So uh, it, it's quite a challenging one to, to say there. But I think at the moment, we're starting to see the first batches of data come in. There was obviously building all the sort of back end infrastructure for this. And now that there are some doctors around the world that are, are trained in how to do the data collection for us, uh, we're starting to get our training data in. So that's been you know, a few days now as of the time of this recording. And I would hazard that from about 100 to 200 measurements, we'll be able to start training decent models. The the real latency is going to be in us verifying the quality of those models. So if you want to play around with this stuff, you would probably be able to, I mean, you can even go now and download the code that we've written. It's all public. It's all open source. It's all community driven by volunteers. So you could download that now. And if you know what you're doing and can follow some basic sort of documentation, you'll be able to get the models running on your computer. But as far as actually predicting things and having medically sound predictions, still somewhat of a way off. It's really hard to say. It, it does also depend on the quality of the data. But we've got a lot of people working on this. I think there's 300 or so people working on the project now and a whole bunch of students from the Freya University are also working on this now part-time. So yeah, the, the hope is we'll get some really high quality models out of this, but we really want to you know, stress the importance of having accurate, reliable results and not just have a model that runs. So basically, I have a lot of data. I, I give it to an algorithm or create the algorithm that's going to interpret this data and uses historical data or life-based data. But do you think that those people who write those algorithms have the same biases as their creators? And as a result, that's why we talk here about why we have to increase diversity, right? Yeah, indeed. So if we get into the biases topic, there's... Everything that you model depends on your data. And the AI creators, so to say, are not always the creators of the data set, but they are the ones who say, I'm going to use this data set and I'm going to get this result. The moment you do that, you should you should know your data set's weaknesses and bias is definitely one of those. So the, the moment you create a data set, you want every entity to be represented equally. The moment you create a data set for face recognition on the smartphone, you want all sorts of ethnicities to be represented there. If you don't do 
that, then any kind of algorithm will be flawed. And if you do have, for instance, imbalance in your data, then the algorithm should be able and should enforce some sort of balancing. Otherwise, it's just never going to work. It's definitely a possibility of the creators. And I would say it's partially of the dataset collector, which is still, you know, AI makers. So it's also a big part of the responsibility goes on to the people who make the algorithms, because if they see a gap, if they see an imbalance in the representations of the dataset, they have to tailor their algorithms to enforce some balance in it and to, to avoid the bias. So this is something that is always prominent in, uh, you know, in research, in, in the industry. You really need to take care of having things represented equally. And at first, when you, you, know, you build an application, you might not see this if your users or if somebody who defines your product or your, your accuracy of the algorithm does not take this into consideration. But that's why it's important that at every step of the process, this thing is considered. As an AI student as well, myself, I think we all notice the fact that um, everyone starts speaking up about it more and more these days, that, that women should be more represented in the tech industries, especially when it comes to computer science and artificial intelligence and this whole threat and, I guess, fear of minorities being stigmatized against by these big algorithms or big technologies that people don't really properly grasp. So I would like to actually delve deeper into what exactly is that you do, because we know that you work with a lot of different machine learning projects as we already said. You mentioned that you work with this autonomous driving project, so maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so on my day-to-day -day work, I'm a machine learning engineer for autonomous driving research and development at TomTom. And what TomTom is doing right now is building these high-definition maps for self-driving cars. And I've been working with this thing for a couple of years, and analyzing the road with algorithms to construct a map is very, very similar to analyzing a road to construct algorithms for driving the car. And the problems are there, right? So you see that, you know, you, you need to have really, really, really good quality of your data, because if you want to analyze the road with a higher level of details, you need to interpret it in so many ways you need to interpret it in terms of like you know you need to understand things like where are the boundaries of my object where where can i drive where can i not but you also need to understand semantics in terms of what kind of object would you drive into if you do not break right now would it be a person with the traffic sign would it be would you go off the rail so all of these semantics of what kind of object the car the camera is seeing are very very important and think about for example in an emergency situation the car has to drive off the road it really needs to know if it's going to drive off if it's going to drive off a bridge and in the water or if it's going to drive off in a green field and all of the semantics are really really important autonomous driving it's also interesting is that a lot of effort is going into this autonomous driving is kind of exploding in the last few years and a lot of companies are working to reach the level five as they say so there's different levels of automation and level five is the level where you know the driver is completely off the wheel but a lot of other entities are taking a slower approach where you slowly give more control to both to the driver and you slowly assist the driver with keeping or like changing in the highway and then slowly getting off to more and more crowded areas like the cities think about a city like amsterdam it would take ages for a southern car to really like you know get comfortable in a city like this but there is areas and certain road classes where things will happen faster yeah it's it's already very interesting to see what autonomous driving can do 
technology. Yeah, so of course there will be, I mean, to actually get to that point where you're going to let the car drive, there's a very long process of, you know, extensive testing and legislation in so many scenarios that I'm not worried. I'm not worried because I know that everyone who's working in this field is taking safety very seriously. Not only the makers, not only tech companies, it's also the governments that are, uh, are taking this seriously, the policy makers, the legislation makers. Everyone, everyone is taking this thing very seriously because the cost is really too high if you, we have cars starting, uh, starting to run over people and bikes. And why are we doing this thing in the first place? Could you potentially elaborate, because now your story, what you're saying, why there's even such human desire to go towards full automation, why people cannot just simply drive their own cars and be satisfied at that level. So why is this constant drive to give more and more autonomy to technology and machines? Do you have any opinion on that? Yeah, that's a very good question, I think, because we often find ourselves really like rushing for the, the more technology, the better, and let's just solve everything with technology. And that is not always the best answer. Sometimes we just have to make conscious decisions about technology. But why I think, and a lot of people think that autonomous driving is a good thing, is that not only does it increase safety in a global scale, because the thing that humans make mistakes, but machines don't make mistakes if they're actually, they're consistent, like you can expect the same results from them if you give them the same scenario. So if we actually get to a point where cars are great at driving on their own, they're going to be much better than people. They will never be able to like fall asleep while driving. So safety is definitely something that can be improved there. But I think there's also very noble other causes, reasons why we're going for autonomous driving. One is, well, to, to give time back to the people, right? In, in many parts of the world, in large cities, I think Amsterdam is not really sensitive to that because the Netherlands is a small country, but very many people in big cities spend so much time commuting. And if they could get, get this time back somehow and use it for personal development or other things, that would be a very noble cause. And what I think is my favorite reason why we should have self-driving cars is to enable this car sharing as public transportation for everyone. And what they would do is that you don't even need to own a car anymore. And you can have this thing pick you up at your door and drop you off where you need to be. And at the, in the evening, it can just go park itself in some parking garage really far away from the city where it doesn't need to take parking spaces in the city. So can you imagine a city without parking space? All that space would go back to parks, to people. I think now maybe we can come back to a bit more business and investment side of things. So maybe you can elaborate on or tell us more about the recent startups, companies that you find super interesting with regards to artificial intelligence. And why do you find the most fascinating? What about them makes you so fascinated? Maybe then we can share it with our listeners. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, there, there are a few that uh, keep catching my attention again and again. One of them that I just think is just really fun and just really enticing from a enthusiasm perspective is called Comma AI. And Comma AI, I think they describe themselves as if Tesla is the iOS of self-driving, then they're the Android. Like they're trying to be the open platform that allows any modern car to be converted into a self-driving car. So it's it's all about you know, open platforms about working together, letting people develop the interfaces to each vehicle in a sort of community driven approach. 
and and a, and a large part of what makes them so interesting is that relative to Tesla, I mean, they're tiny. I think they, you know, they're they're somewhere between like ten and twenty employees. Last I checked, at least working on their core infrastructure. And their um their their CEO George Hartz is 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 a very entertaining character when it comes to uh, all things in um, computer science and uh, the sort of hacker culture. And uh, I think part of what makes them so interesting is is his approach to things, of kind of just saying, you know, forget forget all these bloated large companies, forget all the uh, proprietary stuff just go in at it with a few really enthusiastic really enthusiastic really talented developers and see what you can produce and i I think that kind of attitude is really infectious and really inspiring then another one is um a a limited profit organization called OpenAI. quite a few people have heard of this Uh, a lot of famous uh, billionaires and tech people are responsible for sort of getting getting the ball rolling with it but they're doing some really cool things and they they sort of work at the interface of or the intersection of these narrow and general ai fields so they do a lot of stuff with AI policy and with sort of AI safety, which which focuses on how we're going to deal with these general artificial intelligences that have broad applicable intelligence. And at the same time, they also do things like releasing this GPT-2 language model, which is, you know, a narrow AI, but it's it's very useful in a lot of different domains. Um, and this is just, I mean, that's, that's millions of dollars worth of development costs and training time and GPU time to, to produce this model that's, you know, really shaken up the AI community and what people think is possible with language models, with AI tools in general. Then there's some that get more into my personal um, interest areas in medical applications and biology. And so one is DeepMind is working on a project called AlphaFold, which looks at trying to produce predict how protein structures will look just from their sequencing. Right? So this is known as one of the hardest problems in computing, but by applying deep learning to it and all these computing resources, they're actually getting really good results. And the reason why this is so interesting is because if you can determine what the structure of a protein is from its sequence, your ability to predict what drugs are going to work, what uh, diseases, you know, what effects diseases have, all of those kind of questions that lead to making breakthroughs in cancer and HIV research and in things like the coronavirus are suddenly unlocked. And so there's huge potential there. It's very, very exciting, even from their initial results. And then another area that I find really, really interesting is the work of a researcher called Andrew Trask. And he works on things like differential privacy and federated learning. And essentially, these are ways which you can use these big data sets of confidential information like health records or medical data to train models that everyone can use without actually exposing the real underlying data, right? So I wouldn't know necessarily that specific person, you know, ate this many calories on this day or walked this many steps in this location, but I can train a model on all of the data and therefore everyone can benefit from these much better models trained on more data without having to actually give up their privacy. And, you know, without going into the detail, it's all through injecting various different noise algorithms into the equation when training. And there's a lot of really cool science behind it that's fascinating, but the potential applications are just phenomenal for anything to do with medicine and personal data. So you know about autonomous driving more than than me or Gabriela, for example. So is there some interesting startups or maybe some companies around the world that concentrated on autonomous driving uh, grew a lot and that brought your attention and then you really were inspired by their ideas or what they're doing? Uh, I'll be like to hear about that. 
it's mostly right now autonomous driving is it's kind of an expensive business to get into so you really have as a startup you really need to be somewhere in the silicon valley and have a lot of funding if you really want to work on this right away and there is spin-offs for instance like google has waymo as a spin-off uber is working on their own autonomous car but uber is a well-established build company you have tesla of course is working on autonomous driving the rest is basically startups in silicon valley i can imagine for a startup a really difficult business to get into because the stakes are high and you really expect a return on investment very late and it's not because the technology is not there it's just that the moving of technology with the moving of legislation needs to happen together and of course convincing governments to start to write legislation about these things is a complete different story and I can say that the U.S. is moving a bit faster with that than Europe. The company that I work for, TomTom, we built our first autonomous car in Berlin. And that is to test our maps and to show car makers what is possible to do with our map technologies. And I know that they've, you know, they worked for years and years and years to be able to get some legislation approved and some safety trainings and everything and to get some space even to drive the car and to have this all enabled from German government and the local authorities. That's also a very important thing to consider for the startup ecosystem in Europe. Great. Thank you for your answers. And maybe just a concluding sort of a question. Why do you think it's important to build sort of a knowledge bridge between different domain experts? And why do you think it's more and more, it's becoming more and more prevalent to inform or just like define AI concepts to the general public and other different, yeah, different sector or domain experts? So I think there are a few reasons there. The first is that the first is that AI is already a discipline that brings together multiple other disciplines. You've got statistics, you've got maths, you've got computer science, you've got the engineering. And then, you know, more recently, we're starting to see how you can bring cognitive science, psychology, philosophy, you know, all of these kind of aspects and even art is, is being heavily impacted. So, so there's, there's that approach, which is saying, you know, all of this goes into it. So being able to talk and share ideas across these disciplines really helps progress. But at the same time, there's the other perspective of it, which is just looking at how much AI actually can potentially affect everyone. You know, if it's going to affect the lives of people in every domain, then every domain really needs the capacity to talk about and reason about all of these great questions, right? Um, and and as, as, as soon as you start to introduce these concepts and questions about bias, about privacy, about people losing their jobs due to things like automation, if, if no one is equipped to have the conversation, then we're really going to be limiting our progress by our social tools, not by our technical ones. And that's why I think reaching out to the public and, and every expert trying their best to communicate these ideas is so essential. Thank you all for such an interesting conversation. Thank you for having me.